Well, this morning we come back to Matthew chapter 18 and uh, a discussion by our Savior about spiritual greatness. Just to remind you, that is the way Matthew 18 begins with a question from the disciples, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus proceeds to answer that throughout the rest of this chapter with various discussions on the issue of sin, primarily, whether it is a a sensitivity in our own life to not wanting others to stumble into sin because of the way we live, or whether it is seeking out those who have strayed into a life of sin, or later on, forgiving those who sin repeatedly against you. All of those are encompassed in this discussion of spiritual greatness, all about the ways that you respond and think about the realities of sin in your life and the life of others. And right in the middle of this, we have uh, found ourselves in verses 15 through 20, discussing another angle of this spiritual greatness, which has particularly to do with how we confront or how we talk to those who are ensnared in some sin. This, according to Jesus, is one of the things that will mark your spiritual greatness, your spiritual maturity. In many ways, very similar to what Paul says to the Galatians, that if anyone is caught in a trespass and sin, you who are spiritual, you who are controlled by the Spirit or letting the Spirit sort of dominate your life, you who are spiritual restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Matthew 18, if you will, gives us some of the details of that process, what that looks like on a practical level. And Jesus spells it out here in this step-by-step process, one of the clearest, maybe the clearest step-by-step process you'll find anywhere in Scripture. And we've been trying to understand this, not just so uh, that we understand the process but so that we understand the purpose. In fact, that's, the, that's probably the more critical element is that, that we don't just see the steps, but we understand why He has given these steps. If we are going to really embrace and really understand this element of spiritual greatness and why this is so vital for us, why, why this connects to the idea of our spiritual greatness, then it's going to be critical for us to understand the purpose behind everything that Jesus says here. And so we've been trying to outline some of those things. It's critical that we understand these purposes and, and we understand why He gives this to us because it's not easy what Jesus is asking us to do. It is almost universally looked upon negatively, not as a mark of spiritual greatness, but as a a mark of spiritual self-righteousness or spiritual judgmentalism or misguided Christianity or unloving uh, responses, unloving churches. In fact, if you endeavor to talk to your friend about some sin going on in their life, you should prepare yourself to be lectured on how unloving you are or how you don't understand God's mercy or how you are undermining the work of the gospel, how you might actually be doing something that destroys the church of God by simply doing what Jesus calls you to do here. So how and why does Jesus talk about this as a mark of spiritual greatness? 
We have to answer that question because that's not the way most people see it. Now, you remember we began last week by just talking about those practical steps in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax gatherer. And in those three verses, we we started to talk about the first purpose of this entire process. The first purpose of three purposes that are outlined here, and that has to do with the restoration of repentant sinners. That's what this whole, whole step-by-step process is about. And it's marked, we, can, we know it's about that because it's marked by this goal of winning, or, or, or the ESV says gaining your brother. The brother who has been uh, presumably lost and, and, and ensnared by some sort of sin Your fellowship has been marred or broken. The camaraderie is no longer there. The warmth of fellowship is no longer there because they have begun to be dominated by some some sin. And so you engage them in a conversation and your goal all along the way is restoration. Or in the language of these verses, your goal is to get them to listen, to hopefully respond. And this is what Jesus is is highlighting at every step, every step along the way, what you're hoping for, what you're praying for, what you really, really want, whether it's one-on-one conversations, whether it is two or three people with you, or whether it's even bringing it before the church, what you really want is for this person to finally listen, to understand the dangers of what they are pursuing, how self-destructive sin really is in their life. And that goal is, in many ways, accentuated by the process. Jesus intentionally starts it, private, one-on-one, because the goal is to make the person as receptive as possible to your words, which implies all the other biblical graces as well, gentleness, humility, uh, you know, using biblical appeals along the way, avoiding personal preferences, all those things that might set them off in a path of defensiveness. You are avoiding all of those things because the process is to see them reconciled back to a faithful walk with the Lord and back to the, back to the church. Now, of course, as we mentioned last week, and as we all know by personal experience, that those kinds of appeals are not always received, that sinners don't always listen, that there are people who at one point were involved with the church, but having been ensnared by some sin, they are drawn away from both the church and the gospel. We know, unfortunately, that is a reality. But that highlights a second purpose that Jesus talks about in this passage. And it comes to us in verse 18. And the purpose is to reveal heaven's verdict or reveal heaven's judgment about this particular person. It's not just reconcile them. When they're not reconciled, there is another purpose for all of this. And the purpose is to make clear what heaven thinks about the whole situation. 
This is what Jesus says. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, it's safe to say this is one of the more misunderstood verses in the Scripture. In fact, many people read this and never even contemplate its entire context, that it's connected to this broader discussion about confrontation and church discipline. They read it as some, something maybe to do with prayer or in many cases something to do with spiritual warfare. Uh, people imagine that this is teaching about them binding heavenly beings, demonic beings in heavenly places, whatever it might be. And so you'll hear people using this language Sometimes in reference to spiritual warfare or in reference to demons, as a matter of fact, I mean, amazingly, you will sometimes even hear from pulpits, people praying to Satan, standing in the pulpit of God, talking, instead of talking to God, talking to Satan in the church. They'll say things like, Satan, I bind you in this way or in that way, or I bind you out of this person's life, or I bind you in... You know, over this disease or this ailment or whatever it might be, somehow with the notion that they have this personal authority now over demons and they're supposed to address them this way. As if the demons would listen to them anyway. They think that that this is all about preventing demonic attacks or maybe healing demon-oppressed people or helping people overcome some sort of demonic activity in their life. That's not to minimize demonic activity. We know that demonic activity is real, and we know that Christians need to take it seriously, and we know that spiritual warfare is a reality that Paul himself uh, repeatedly talks about, but this particular verse has nothing to do with that. It has nothing to do with spiritual warfare, and it has nothing to do with demons at all. The Bible, in fact, nowhere even allows or commands you to ever bind a demon. Spiritual warfare doesn't operate like that, and this verse has nothing to do with that kind of notion. This verse is about confrontation. This verse is about discipline. And we know that because the entire context is bound together with these words that that show us the cohesiveness of the topic. This, we noted last week, is is seen by just noting the repeated phrase of two or three. In verse 16, he talks about two or three witnesses. Again, in verse 19, if two of you agree on earth, or in verse 20, where two or three are gathered in my name. Those those repetitions provide boundaries in a particular context. In fact, this is one of the keys to Bible interpretation. Whenever you're reading your Bible and you're trying to understand it, one of the things that you ought to be doing is trying to find the boundaries of a particular context by looking for repeated words. And so what we have here is a a very clear context from verse 15 to 20 about confrontation. And in the middle of all this is a verse about binding and loosing. But what does it mean? And and really, what does it have to do with confrontation? Well, the words binding and loosing were fairly established in uh, in the first century. The rabbis used it. Uh, They were 
the ones who operated more or less as the local judiciary. The synagogues in every town were the places not only where they taught the Scripture on Sabbath, but the lawyers and the scribes would also hold court for local matters that came to their attention regarding the law. And people would come and they would make their case about someone violating the law or needing some element of restitution or judgment. And so rabbis would hear these cases and make judgments. And it's within the context of this that they use this terminology of binding and loosing. They would bind people in the sense of restricting them from certain kinds of behavior. In some cases, they would even bind them out of the synagogue, restrict them from coming to the synagogue because of the way they were living. Or, conversely, they would loose them. They would declare them not guilty. They would say that whatever the consequences are of their activities are not, uh, you know, they're not going to suffer from that. They're free from those consequences, free from the guilt, free from the blame, or whatever it might be. So the terminology was fairly well established. And, of course, in this context, Jesus is obviously using it in reference to a a same kind of legal determination. The determination made in verse 17, the determination to bring someone before the church and ultimately to put them out of the church, to bind them in that sense. And what he's saying here is, very simply, if you make... That determination on earth, it has been made in heaven. If you determine that someone within your fellowship is not living a life consistent with their testimony, and if therefore you determine that they are to be put out of the church, that determination has also been made in heaven. Now, needless to say, that is... A terrifying statement. The realization that this determination that is made by a church is the visible evidence of God's determination in heaven is an astounding and terrifying concept. But that's exactly what Jesus is saying. And he adds this here because he understands the tendency whenever you get into these kinds of situations. When you have someone who is vigorously wanting to hold on to their life of sin and wanting to avoid any kind of accountability, he understands that the tendency is going to be to chafe against the process, to question it, to to be bitter about the process to try to downplay it or in some way delegitimize it. And so he just wants to establish that whatever the verdict is that's made by the church is the verdict of heaven so that we can settle that matter. He wants us to understand that one of the purposes of this step-by-step process is to make crystal clear to everyone who sees exactly what heaven's determination is. Now, obviously, that raises some serious questions, particularly the 
question of how could a church ever be so certain as to say what heaven's declaration is. I mean, after all, these are fallible people. They're not God. They don't know everything. They're prone to mistakes. They have their own sort of issues that they're dealing with. How can Jesus say that the determination of the church is the determination of heaven? How can he say that the verdict of the church is the verdict of heaven? Well, to answer that question, we probably should back up for a moment and just ask ourselves how Jesus uses this language of binding and loosing in general. And to do that, we could back up to Matthew chapter 16, back in uh, verse 16. You may remember this section if you were with us. Jesus was asking his disciples, who do people say that I am? And Peter responds, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, to which Jesus says in verse 17, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. So you have come to this belief, you've come to this realization, but it didn't come from your intellectual powers, it didn't come from your own insights, it didn't come from flesh and blood. So it's not from you or it's not from any other human source. It doesn't come from other, any other human uh, um, origin. It's not from flesh and blood. Instead, it is divinely revealed to you. My Father in heaven revealed this to you, like He does with every person who comes to know Christ. He makes their heart open up, or we say sometimes He brings them back from spiritual death. He opens their blind eyes. He unstops their deaf ears. He makes them a brand new creation. He takes a heart of stone out of them and gives them a heart of flesh so that they are receptive to the things of God. This is a divine activity, purely from heaven, He says. But then Jesus goes on to tell Peter, I tell you, you are Peter, And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And there we have our phrase. Except in Matthew 16, Jesus, he's not speaking to the entire church. He's talking to Peter here, directly to Peter. In fact, he uses the singular, just talking to him. And he's telling Peter that even though this gospel was divinely revealed to you, even though it doesn't originate with flesh and blood or any human person, even though it has to come by God's divine activity, it will be mediated to other people through the voice of men like you, Peter. Peter is given the key of the kingdom of heaven. He's given the key of the kingdom of heaven. That's an interesting phrase. It makes me uh, think of this uh, phrase in Chinese. Whenever I was living in China, people talked about the man with the key, uh, meaning that he was the the person that was going to make the way or, or open up or help you make some connection. It was kind of built on this notion that no matter what your status was in society, if you had the key, you had the power. I mean, you could be the most lowly, you know, sort of uh, uh, day uh, laborer, wage worker, 
sitting at a gate with a lock on it, and if a presidential motorcade drives up, at that point you have all the power. Like if you don't open that gate, that president's not getting in. You're stopping his whole agenda. So this notion of, of having a key was the idea of having the authority or having the power. And, and so Jesus is using it in a very similar way. In fact, he, he uses this same language to talk about the Pharisees and the scribes over in Luke 11.52 when he talked about them having a key. But in, in their situation, it was a key that he says they had taken away. He says in Luke eleven fifty two, Woe to you, lawyers, for you've taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. In other words, he had given them or entrusted them with the knowledge of Scripture, the knowledge of God's Word. He had given them the key of knowledge. But what they had done with it was they had corrupted it. They had distorted it. In fact, they had hidden it. They took it away. Not only for themselves, they didn't enter into heaven or enter into this salvation. Not only did they not act on it, but they didn't let other people act on it because they took away the key. They had access to the truth and they didn't share it. Or they obscured it. Or they perverted it or adulterated it or however you want to think about what the Pharisees were doing. But in Matthew 16, Jesus says he's giving the key. He's going to give the key, meaning the same thing. He's going to give the knowledge of the gospel. Peter's going to have the knowledge that unlocks, if you will, heaven. He's entrusting this gospel message to Peter. So now, Peter will proclaim the gospel. He will articulate God's plan of salvation. And in doing that, he will unlock heaven for anyone who believes that gospel. But the key, if you will, to pun, take a pun there, the key is that they actually believe what Peter says. They, they can't get to heaven any other way. They can't make up their own pathway to heaven. They can't make up their own message. They can't make up their own truth. They can't make up their own gospel. No matter what they believe, if it is not the message that was given to Peter and to the other apostles, it's not the key and they will not unlock heaven. So Peter is given the key. He's entrusted with the message. And on the basis of his message and the message of the other apostles, that will determine whether people are bound out of heaven, bound still in their condemnation of sin, or whether or not they are loosed, that is, freed from their condemnation, forgiven of their sins, allowed to go to heaven, well, how they respond to the key, how they respond to the gospel message is the determining factor of whether or not they are bound or whether they are, are loosed. And this is the power of binding and loosing that Peter had because he had the message. It was all determined by the message. It was all determined by the key, all determined by the truth of what Peter was preaching. It wasn't Peter's personal authority. That's not what Jesus is saying. It was, it's not his personal judgment. 
It's not his you know, individual determination whether someone goes to heaven or not. It's about the truth of the message. He was going to be able to bind and loose. He was going to be able to, if you want to think about it this way, declare confidently and authoritatively whether someone is going to heaven or not based on whether they rejected or whether they accepted the truth of his message. By the way, it wasn't just Peter. Jesus says that to Peter in in John 16 singularly, but later on he'll say something very similar to the rest of the apostles near the end of his ministry in John 20, verse 21. Jesus speaks to the disciples and says, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so even I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Same basic idea as this binding and loosing, this forgiving or not being forgiven. He's telling them that because you have this gospel, this gospel authoritatively declares who is forgiven and who is not. So the apostles are entrusted with this. Uh, they had a role uh, that that gave them this authority to declare the gospel. And because the message was entrusted to them, based on that message, they were going to make declarations of who will and who will not get into heaven. If you believe the things they preach, you are forgiven. You'll enter into heaven. If you refuse it, you're bound out of heaven. Now, Basically, that's the same thing that's going on in Matthew 18, except from a different angle. In Matthew 16 and these other places, the focus was on the proclamation of the message to the lost. Jesus entrusted the apostles with the message, with the key, and as they faithfully preached it, they were binding and loosing people in that sense. But here... The focus is not necessarily on the unevangelized. Here, the message is on the people who have purportedly accepted this message of salvation. They have embraced it in some sense and they have been uh, made a part of the church. They've made a profession of faith, but now they're no longer living consistently with that profession. Now, they're no longer following Jesus as Lord now and they're no longer walking in obedience to him and so it is the church's responsibility equally to make the declaration of heaven clear the declaration of heaven hasn't changed you may have changed you may have decided that you're not going to take this religious thing so seriously you may have decided that taking up your cross and following is too much cost You may have decided that the world promises more joy to you than Christ promises to you. You may have made that personal decision, but it doesn't change heaven. And so now what has to happen is there has to be brought clarity about what is taking place. Heaven's verdict about your life has to be made clear. And in doing all of this, Jesus says you are binding and you are Loosing. You're making clear that the gospel calls us not just to repentance at the beginning, but to a life of repentance. 
and unrepentant members of the church, unrepentant sinners, are giving no evidence of what true faith is like. In other words, dealing decisively with these wayward sinners is continuing to clarify the message of the gospel as much as Peter had to clarify the message. Is continuing to guard the message of the gospel as much as he was to guard it. By the way, the verb tenses here kind of confirm this because uh, Jesus uses what are perfect tense participles here, uh, which generally refer to action which took place in the past but has present manifestation or present results. And that's the idea that's here. What Jesus is saying is not so much that when you personally bind someone on your own will or your own authority or your own determination, that when you do that, that that, that's going to create some reaction in heaven. But, but, But when the church faithfully carries out its job and upholds the integrity of the gospel and carries out discipline, the person who is put out of the church will have been bound already in heaven. You're just making clear what heaven already knew. You may have been deceived. We may have all been deceived when this person first made their profession of faith. But heaven always knew that this was a charlatan masquerading as a disciple of Christ. And so by doing all of this, What you bind on earth will have already been bound in heaven. What you loose on earth will have already been loosed in heaven. You make that declaration and you're revealing what heaven has already thought about this person. Because their life no longer reflects that of a true disciple of Christ. Now all that brings us to the final purpose of all this which is given to us in verses 19 and 20. The final purpose of this entire process is that it relies on Christ's authority. This is all about His authority. This is all about Him dictating and controlling what takes place in His church. The church is the body of Christ. He is its head. And so therefore, every one of us have to submit to what He desires to take place in the body of Christ. We may not like it. We may not have done it that particular way if it was up to us, but that doesn't really matter. What matters is what He wants because He's the head of the church and we are all coming in line and underneath what He once. And so this is what Jesus is getting at in verse 19. He uses a, a verb of repetition here again uh, to add additional information to what he's already saying here. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Now, this is just a as a footnote, another verse that is often taken out of context. People read this and imagine that it has something to do with prayer. And if you can you know, persuade your buddy to pray the same thing that you're praying at the same time, it's going to somehow guarantee a response from God. He's going to do now whatever you want him to do. But again, we just, we just note the, the language here, the two or three language. In this particular case, just referring to, to two of you. Jesus is talking about the legal 
standard here, the legal process, particularly the multiple witnesses. These two witnesses agreeing about anything in terms of the legal judgment. That, that's the best uh, notion of the word here. When he says, if you agree about anything, he isn't talking about a blank check, whatever you might have in mind, is the word is pragma, from which we get pragmatic, but it's a word that is used to speak about legal claims, legal matters. In fact, Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 6 when he talks about Christians going to court with other Christians. He says, when one of you has a pragma, a legal claim against another, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous rather than the saints? Do you dare go to the secular courts rather than the church over your pragma, your legal claim? So, so what Jesus is talking about here is not just whatever comes to your mind that you happen to agree with somebody else on, but when you agree on this legal matter that we've just been discussing in this context, when you agree on those things, he says, you will have whatever claim you make before heaven. That's really the best way to probably understand the verb there, a testai, a, a testai, excuse me, a testai. Uh, D.A. Carson says this verb refers to pursuing a claim as well as asking in prayer. The promise then, he says, is that if two individuals in the church come to agreement concerning any claim, they are pursuing By the way, the same verb is used in Paul's court case in Acts 25, verse 15, when the Jews were making a claim against Paul. So the the context is obviously all about these legal matters. And what Jesus is saying is when the church has faithfully carried out its task, when it has properly gathered all of the evidence, when they make that judgment According to the process he has laid out, the Father in heaven carries out the judgment. Or do you want to say it a different way? That in these matters, God is on the side of the church. In these matters, God is on the side of the church. Now obviously, as as I said, these are Staggering claims, really. Uh, Almost unheard of claims. Which is why Jesus has to repeatedly state the legal standard here. Two or three. Two or three. When two of you agree. Because he understands as well as anyone the possibility for corruption. He knows that people get things wrong. But if you have followed the process, if you have gone privately to begin with, as he said. If you have dealt with this with the kind of uh, care and attention to the reputation of the person that you should have, if you have established all of the facts so that they are beyond dispute with all of the appropriate witnesses, when the church has done all of this, and by the way, I think there's even an implication 
when Jesus moves beyond this passage to talk about forgiving someone who sins against you 70 times 7, there's an implication that you're going with a heart ready to forgive. You're going with a heart that's filled with graciousness and mercy and kindness. If you've done all of that when the church has patiently and graciously and faithfully followed the process laid out by the Lord, God is on the side of the church. And the judgment that they make is ratified by the Lord. Jesus even confirms this in verse 20. For where two or three, you'll notice the word four. It's the explanation of what he just said in verse 19. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. That, that, that is also very sobering. If you've done your due diligence, if these two or three are coming before the church and they are gathered in His name. By the way, when He uses that in His name, He's clarifying, first of all, that you're not doing this in your name. This isn't personal. This isn't your own inclinations and preferences or any of those other things. What motivates you, what drives you is the name of God. And he's not just talking about uttering his name. He's talking about honoring his name, working according to his name, according to his authority, according to his character, according to his instruction. You're doing all of this in his name. You do that and undertake with the greatest of care this discipline, then it's as if the Savior Himself is standing with you in that assembly making that declaration. Again, Jesus says all this because He knows the way this unfolds. You go talk to someone about their sin, what do they say? Who do you think you are? Who in the world, what business is it of yours to snoop into my, my, my life and, and, and my affairs? Who in the world? Don't you know that you have your own issues? Well, Jesus wants you to know that when the church is doing this, it isn't personal. This isn't about the person who's talking to you. It's not about the two or three it's about God. It's about His gospel. It's about guarding and protecting the proclamation of that gospel. It's about clarifying who is one of His disciples and who is not. It's about binding and loosing. It's about doing everything in His name. In fact, to refuse to do this, for a church to just sort of go on and just tolerate this stuff in their midst all the time would be doing the exact opposite. It would be doing things or refusing to do things in His name, refusing to do the very thing He's asking you to do, refusing to follow His commands, refusing to let Him have ultimate say over the church. It is what Paul says of the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 5 when he says they have such immorality among them as isn't even known among the Gentiles. They were tolerating sexual immorality in the church. And Paul says to him in 1 Corinthians 5, 2, you have become arrogant. It is now your own pride that is making you think that you can rule the church however you want to and you can put up with all this stuff when Christ is the head of the church. 
And so he tells them, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord, and my spirit is present with you, and with the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, you deliver this person over to Satan, which basically means you move him out of the protective grace of the church back into the domain of the world. They're placed back into the domain of darkness. It's almost the opposite of that of that result that happens whenever we place our faith in Christ. And Colossians says we're delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Now they're transferred back out of that kingdom, back into the domain of darkness. Now they're living outside the loving community of the body of Christ. They're removed from the environment of wisdom and counsel and grace and love. And they're left to the world with all of its darkness and all of its deception and all of its false hopes and false loves and false promises, all to taste the ultimate results of their decisions. And the hope is that as that begins to take hold in their life, that somewhere down the road, when they finally start to taste the consequences of their choices, it'll bring them to see the truth of their rebellion and their sin, and the truth of Christ. Again, none of this is done with personal hostility. None of this is done with malice. It all has the same clear purpose. The purpose of redeeming the sinner. The purpose of making clear the gospel. The purpose of reconciling them to their God. The purpose of showing them true life. The purpose of teaching them about forgiveness and mercy. Lord, these are weighty words indeed for us to contemplate, to know that we've been entrusted with this responsibility and in it you have ventured to place your name and heaven's verdict, and heaven's judgment alongside of ours. It should give us great fear and trembling then, but also a great sense of the responsibility we have to make sure that those who profess faith in the gospel uphold the gospel and walk according to it. This obviously means much to you, Lord, for the words that you give to us in this passage are so clear and so compelling. Let it be a commitment that we have in ourselves to spiritual greatness, to do the things that are necessary, to love our brothers, to uphold the truth of the gospel, and to yield ourselves to the head of the church. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.